Let's pray. Lord Almighty, thank you once again for this opportunity to come before you and thank you for encouraging our hearts through the grace that you gave to Russ Lichen and the Lichen family. And Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you have blessed us with the ability to remember and to repent. I pray that now you would open our ears and open our eyes to your word so that we would hear and obey. And Lord, I pray that you would remove from us those things that would distract us and keep us from hearing your word so that we will be the men and women of God you have created us to be. We love you, Jesus. Amen. What's worse than living a life of bar hopping and illicit relationships, getting an abortion every now and then, and being extraordinarily dishonest in your business practices. What's worse than that? How about, what's worse than being a a tax collector and a prostitute, as it's commonly referred to in the New Testament? How about being a self-righteous temple official? That's the lesson we learn in the second half of Matthew 21. Now, last time we were here, two weeks ago, we saw the joy and the celebration of the children of all ages who were willing to put themselves second and celebrate their coming King. We also saw that in that first half that Jesus had no time to deal with Rome. He wasn't concerned in the least. Instead, Jesus only had eyes for those who were making it difficult for the ordinary man and woman to worship the Lord, the King of Kings. And so in the second half of Matthew chapter 21, the temple officials respond. They see that Jesus has, so to speak, drawn a sword, and so they want to draw the sword and attack him as well. And just so we're clear, what we're going to talk about today happened on Tuesday morning of the week that Jesus was murdered on Friday. So keep that in mind as we're going over these next several weeks going through the end of Matthew. And in the second half of Matthew 21, there are two groups of people being contrasted. You have the common people. Now what you need to know about the common people is that the temple officials believe themselves to be above the common people. As if all of the common people are tax collectors and prostitutes. And then you have the temple officials themselves. Now, In this interaction, for the sake of argument, Jesus accepts the temple officials' assertion that they are, in fact, tax collectors and prostitutes, that they're bar-hopping, sex-loving, abortion-getting, dishonest business people. Now, Jesus doesn't necessarily believe that. He knows those who are. But, as one of Jesus' 20th century disciples said, catch this, the sins of the flesh are bad. Bar hopping, sex loving, abortion getting. But they are the least bad of all sins. 
All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport, and of backbiting and pleasures of power, of hatred. That is why, Lewis says, a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. Worse than bar hopping is the self-righteous judging of bar hoppers. Now, you have to get in the New Testament, to judge someone is to make yourself out to be better than them. Is to lift yourself up, so to speak, by putting them down. It, it has nothing to do with discernment. We look at the lives of those who are around us and we discern what's going on. But there's a difference between that and saying, I'm better than that guy over there. Or I'm better than that lady over there. Because that is where you shift from being discerning to being judging. This self-righteousness is the unwillingness to put ourselves in the place of these people who are sinning and to repent repent of our own goodness. Something we're going to keep coming back to. And my friends, this repenting of our own goodness or this not having a self-righteous attitude is why people seem to come to Jesus in prison more often than they do in Princeton. In prison, people see how bad they are. In Princeton, they're allowed to blind themselves just like the temple officials because they are good. They are the, in this case, not religious, but the intelligentsia. And they are good, judged good by everyone around them. And it's hard to repent of that. And Christian, it's not just them. We find it difficult to see ourselves for the sinners that we are when we are faced with the egregious grace, that maddening grace that Jesus gives to those bar-hopping prostitutes. We believe that we are righteous, that we are those Princetonians instead of the prisoners. In the first half of Matthew 21, we were exhorted to celebrate your coming King, to look away from yourself and look to Him. Because whether you're a bar hopper or you're a temple official, our eyes need to be on Jesus. And in this week, we learn that we must honor our coming King. So let's see why the sins of the flesh, though terrible slavery, which they are, and we must, as Christians, labor to help people be set free, those sins of the flesh are not nearly so bad as the sin of self-righteousness. Let's see where Jesus says, starting in Matthew 23. When Jesus had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you 
also one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? Hmm. They discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's unpack this. Jesus gives them a dilemma that they need to work out. If they respond that John's authority to baptize indeed was from God, then they're going to have to deal with the fact that John pointed at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Man, we can't do that because that would be conceding the point. If they respond that John was from men, not only would the temple officials lose face in front of those who held that John was a prophet, but they would also have to acknowledge the fact that Jesus is one up on John because of the miracles he has done, most recently of which was the morning before this when he healed everyone who came to him. Man, that won't work. So, they think to themselves, I don't want to be caught on the horns of this dilemma. Let's just punt. What if the temple officials refuse to answer Jesus? Well, Jesus will also not answer. And get this, the temple officials know what's going to happen. What happens? Jesus refuses to answer because the temple officials are remaining obstinately bound to their blindness. They refuse to open their eyes and they know it. My friends, reason does not work with a toddler throwing a tantrum. You cannot reason a toddler out of a tantrum and you cannot reason the temple officials in this case or the Princetonians in our case out of this temper tantrum I don't want to see. The miracles should have been enough to catch their attention so that they could have opportunity to repent of their willful blindness. However, as Jesus told us in His parable about Lazarus and the rich man, Miracles don't change hearts. Those who will not see shall not see. Those who don't want to see will have what they could have seen taken away from them. So what's really going on? When I do counseling in my office, my number one object, well, my number one object is to give hope. I want to tell the people, look, as long as there's a heartbeat, there's an opportunity for change because the Holy Spirit is more powerful than any sin we have. Amen? But the other thing that I always want to do that first counseling session is I want to get at the heart of the problem. You're dealing with anger, you're dealing with depression, or you're dealing with this or that. There's thousands of symptoms of a relatively few number of heart issues. The heart issue of these temple officials is as plain as day if you're willing to look at it. 
Their problem is what we call the fear of man. They are afraid of people more than they are afraid of God. Isaiah gets right to the bottom of the problem of the fear of man. Matthew, excuse me, Isaiah 51. I, I am he who comforts you. This is Yahweh speaking through Isaiah. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the Son of Man who is made like grass. The fear of man is when what people think, what people are saying around you becomes more important than what God has said. The fear of man becomes so important in your decision making that you cannot trust the promises of God for you in Christ. Which is the essence of Christianity. And by the way, who do you think you are that you're afraid of some dude who's going to die? Isaiah puts it even one step more succinct. And I love how he says it in verse 22-22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. <coughs> what he's saying here, <coughs> what he's saying here is if you could take the air out of his nose, guess what? He dies. Right? You take that breath away from him, what? 90 seconds. You and they, Isaiah says, are going to die. What will happen to you then? Because whoever is in charge of that moment, that needs to be your audience of one. That's what it means to fear the Lord. That's what it means to honor your coming King. But instead, the temple official's problem was this fear of man. Not putting God first, the temple officials were afraid of losing their privilege and their power because they are the ones who are the stewards of the temple. If you are the guardian of the door that gets everyone to God, boy, that's, that's some serious power, isn't it? That's some serious power. Which is why Jesus took that away from us in the New Testament. He just said, y'all are priests. Y'all can go straight to God. And be glad about that. Now, this tension between those who are in power and their fear over those whom they have that power, that tension is as old as civilization. And the temple officials needed to keep Rome off their backs, and they also needed to have the populace, oh yeah, remember those people that they called tax collectors and sinners? They needed to keep these people revering their position so that they can keep their jobs. Now whenever your thoughts, your comfortable job becomes more important than honoring the coming king, you're in trouble. So honor your coming king instead of anybody and everybody else. 
Choose to see. Honor your coming King by going to His Word to know Him better. And then go to His world to train your heart so that you can recognize Him. Then, and only then, will you love Him more and trust Him more than all of the things that glitter about us. Now that's a powerful point. And there's a whole lot in that little section. And so Jesus does us the favor by repeating it, that same teaching, with two different parables. Jesus wanted to make sure He loved to tell stories that would capture our attention. And He described obvious heart problems, in this case, the fear of man, in order to hold in front of you and me a mirror so that oh, I've got these blemishes. I need to take care of them. And in this case, the fear of man is that blemish. How do we see that Jesus does this? Let's pick up in verse 28. Jesus says, What do you think? A man has two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, obvious answer, the first. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. What's going on? The tax collectors and the, and the prostitutes are represented in this parable by the son who says, no, I will not go. I'm going to go bar hopping and I'm going to go get my abortions and I'm going to go do all these things. But they realize the emptiness the crushing weight of loving their sin. And they see John the Baptist and John says, repent. They hear Jesus, repent. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the tax collectors and the prostitutes knew that they were heavy laden. They knew that they needed rest. And so they said, please, Praise Jesus, that is what I need. Even the worst sinners you know can repent. If my father's son can come to Jesus, anybody can come to Jesus. And even the worst sinners can repent, which is why there is hope for you, there is hope for me, and there is hope for even the Apostle Paul. Now, side note, time out for a second. You don't need to tell drug addicts and prostitutes that what they are doing is empty and unsatisfying and bankrupt. You know why? Because they know it better than you do. They've been living it. You don't need to tell them what they're doing is awful. What you need to do is tell them, look, I don't have all the answers, but I know the one who does, and I will love you till you get the ones you need. Okay, 
I'll stop meddling. I'll get back to preaching. The temple officials are represented in this parable by the son who said, Yes, sir! Got it, Dad! I'm on my way. We're going out to the field. And where do they go? They go off into left field. They look good, but they aren't good, are they? Like the temple officials, it's easy for you and me to make up our own rules about goodness and so prop ourselves up and make ourselves seem better than the tax collectors and prostitutes, the bar hoppers and the abortion getters. I read my Bible five times a week, so I'm better than that slob over there who goes to Chumash every week. Such goodness isn't. One of the hardest things to do in this world, my friends, is to be a faithful church member for 18 years, as Russ told us, and then repent of your goodness and say, oh, I haven't had this all of my life. I need what Jesus has. So, in this parable, we got the tax collectors and prostitutes, we got the temple officials, we got the brother who says, no way, Jose. We got the brother who says, yep, you got it, but doesn't go. Which one in this story is good? Well, that's an easy answer. Neither of them. Both stand guilty before God. So if that's true, then how on earth do these bar hoppers get into the kingdom of God before these really clean religious dudes? They repented. They saw the emptiness of their sin. They saw the oppressive slavery of the sins of the flesh, if you want to call them that. And they realized, man, this is messed up. All the greatness that I was promised by embracing this sin is empty. And I need something better. They repented at John the Baptizer. In other words, they heard the message that they could not measure up to God's standards and they turned to the God who would gladly, gladly, running to be their Savior. So one really clear application of this message, repent. Turn away from your sin that you love so much and turn to the God who is better than anything you cling to. But that is only one part of what's going on. And, and like I've tried to say a couple of times, I don't think that's the most important thing going on. The call to a righteous life and repentance is important. It's vital. It's necessary to the Christian life. You should, in fact, strive. You should sweat in learning how to sin less and do spiritual disciplines more. But the temple officials, and very often we, are guilty often of something far, more, far worse than boozing and wasteful living. Though the temple officials outwardly have a good life, not only did they not go to the fields, yes sir, I go, but they didn't respond to John's call to repent when they were reminded. 
They didn't really pursue righteousness by pursuing God. And they didn't respond when they saw those who were worse sinners than them repent and pursue righteousness. They had three chances, Jesus says in here. And in each one, they covered their eyes and ears and la, 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 la. Didn't want to hear it. Didn't want to have any part of it. Here's the key. Though they should have known to turn from their quote-unquote goodness, they refused to put themselves second, as we saw at the beginning of this chapter, and live. In essence, Jesus tells them, you should have known better, but you didn't. You had plenty of warnings and you refused to see. Jesus, by the way, said the exact same thing to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he said, Are you a teacher in Israel and do you not understand these things? You should be getting this, Nico. I'm telling you. But then we have to ask a legitimate question. Why? Why is it that they should have known better? Why is it that they should have been on to all this? Well, we find the answer when Jesus is on the road with two, two disciples of His to Emmaus. And what did He do? He opened the Scriptures to them. And Jesus told them about what? What did Jesus say? About Himself. From the Old Testament, from beginning to end, the Jewish leaders should have known better and therefore responded more quickly when John the Baptist came preaching and then Jesus came. They knew, quote-unquote, their Bibles, but they didn't. They didn't get to the heart of what was going on. They, like you and me, have Bibles. How many Bibles do you have in your home? How many Bibles do you have on your phone? You have God's Word. Someone who's in backcountry Mongolia may have a good excuse, but you don't. Do you? If you don't have a Bible, please see me immediately after I'm done. I will give you Bibles. In plural. And so, if we reject the grace of God that's in our hands, then we also reject the grace of God for those we pretend are worse than us. And in rejecting this grace, we make ourselves to be self-righteous and we are worse than those who struggle with the sins of the flesh. Neither the tax collectors and prostitutes nor the temple officials centered their existence on Christ. Instead, they made it all about themselves. Now, fortunately, praise Jesus, the tax collectors and the prostitutes repented. And fortunately, Jesus gave the temple officials an opportunity to do the same. Maybe, just maybe tonight, He's giving you that opportunity. The cold, self-righteous prig who regularly goes to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. Have you been relying on your self-righteousness for 80 years because you're better than those people? Don't be. Repent of your goodness. 
Do you know that you can read God's word in such a way that you incur judgment on yourself? Do you realize that you could be reading your Bible in such a way that you're getting more judgment on yourself than if you hadn't read God's word? Wow, preacher. Some Baptist preacher just said that? Yes, I did. And I want you to hear it. You may be reading God's Word in such a way that Jesus is going to say to you, you should have known. And Lord, there's a lot of people in the United States, when they face Jesus someday, He's going to say, you should have known. When you read just to check your box, you let your eyes simply float over the Word so that you get credit. You will have already received your reward. You got credit, whatever that means. Another way to read the Bible towards judgment is when you read it simply to get answers as opposed to reading God's Word so that you know God better. Way too often we Christians make Christianity about me. How God loves me. How I felt today when I was listening to worship. How people, I look to the people around me when I'm raising my hands or when I'm being a good Baptist and keep my hands all the way down on my hips. (laughs) Instead, you and I need to honor your coming King. This is what separates the nice and the good people from the imperfect sinners who recognize my need. And because I recognize my need, I turn to the God and the people He left as His hands and His feet on earth while He's gone. I honor my coming King by finding Him in the Scriptures. I go to God's Word today and search in it for Jesus. Not just a little checky box. Not just a little answer so I could tell that heathen on Facebook what's for. Honor your coming King by allowing your heart to burn within you as you listen to the God, the Spirit through His Word. And then you will avoid the trap of missing the blessing of your coming King. How does honoring your coming King mitigate against self-righteousness and the sins of the flesh? How does God's Word help? If you're busy honoring your coming King, you won't have an opportunity to fear the opinions of those who are opposed to you. And if you're busy honoring your coming king, then you will not have the opportunity to dwell on your self-righteousness and so earn God's wrath. Now, Jesus has another parable for us, starting in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. He did everything he could to make sure this vineyard was a great vineyard. You got to get that. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. All of the, well, not the killing of the servants, but this is what would have happened back in these days. But notice verse 37. 37 is a strange verse. This would have never happened in first century Palestine. Jesus says in his story, finally he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. 
Would you send your only son to a bunch of murderers? Thieves? Hmm. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Yes, what will he do? He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him their fruits in season. Jesus said to them, have you never heard read in the Scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Whenever you get to a teaching, especially of Jesus, and He throws a curveball in there, something you, you're just not expecting, like, what? You sent your unarmed son into a den of murderers and thieves? Who does that kind of thing? Jesus says things like that to catch your attention. You wake up and you say, whoa, wasn't expecting that. What are you trying to say, Jesus? Well, in this one, we obviously see that this is a self-reference to what Jesus, in fact, came to do. And what was it that He came to do? He came so that He might receive the fruit that was due his father. That is a big deal. Verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Okay, quickly. What fruit do the people of the kingdom of God produce? Now, fruit in Matthew, we haven't really spent a whole lot of time on this, but is a major theme throughout Matthew's book. And in it, he spends for the most time, most of his references of, uh, to fruit in Matthew, and this is a clear one, point back to the very first time he used the concept. John the Baptist is calling to the people and they're saying to him, what do we do? How do we get right with God? What is it, John, that we are supposed to be about? And John the Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The fruit of those who belong to God's kingdom, whether they struggle with self-righteousness or they struggle with the sins of of the flesh is repentance. It's turning away from that which you have embraced for so long. Changing the way you think about that particular person or that particular thing or that particular circumstance. And saying, no, that's wrong. That's poison. And though it doesn't feel right yet, and it won't, you turn to the one who says, I am life. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Some of you here today, you hear this sermon, you think, man, I am the tax collector or prostitute. I am a wretch. I am, I am a sinner. By the way, that's where my mind goes when I run into this kind of teaching. Are you a tax collector or prostitute? 
then repent and experience the remarkable grace of a cleansing and healing. Some of you maybe here are closer to the sins of the temple officials. Then repent and experience the extraordinary grace of peace and relief. Everyone needs to experience the power of God giving us what we don't deserve before it's too late. Because as Jesus makes crystal clear right here, a day will come when God's patience is exhausted and He will return to His field expecting fruit. And blessed is He who is bearing fruit in keeping repentance. Blessed is He who honors your coming King. Now, the temple officials did not miss this. The temple officials understood exactly what Jesus was saying to them. So, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard His parables, they perceived that He was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest Him, they feared the crowds because they held Him to be a prophet. Now, Of course we know that the parables here are prophetic. And of course we know that judgment did come upon the nation of Israel. And we know that they remain prophetic. Meaning that He will one day judge all the nations. And the temple officials, and maybe some Princetonians, maybe some nice, good Christians among us also understand and they get the fact that Jesus is willing to forgive tax collectors and prostitutes and they hate it. It makes them so angry. Let it go. You are not their judge. And they will deal before their maker, before their judge, before their God in heaven. And Lord, bless them so that they repent. But He will take care of it. And we know that these tax collectors, the temple officials want to murder Jesus and only in a few precious days they'll pluck up the courage and take the opportunity to do so. But once again, do not let the Bible pass under your eyes in these last two verses of this parable. Jesus is also talking to us through Matthew's exhortation so that you and I would go to His Word and find Him as the faithful One who will never leave us nor forsake us. My friends, honor your coming King. Lord Almighty, bless us so that we will receive the grace upon grace And Lord, I know that here there are some tax collectors and prostitutes and we ask that You would forgive us of our sins. You would cleanse us and You would free us from guilt and shame and help us to experience Your love. And Lord, there are those of us who are temple officials. Oh God, peace and rest and relief from the burden of carrying our goodness and righteousness and give it back to You so that You will be glorified. Bless us indeed, Jesus, so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, Amen.